Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Okay, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and thank you for joining us here today. We're at the Miami Book Fair. It's the 40th annual Miami Book Fair, and there's a lot of authors here, and I had the privilege to read a book by one of them already in preparation for this, and uh, we have Chris Wilson with us, the author of The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. Thanks. And uh, it's a really fantastic book, Chris, and thank you. thanks for putting it together. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, why you wrote yeah. the book, and why it's called The Master Plan? Yeah, absolutely. Like It's a pleasure to be here um, today. I am Chris Wilson, a visual artist. I now live here in Miami. Uh, I also live in New York uh, and Baltimore. Uh, but I uh, wanted to write a book about my story. I have a really interesting life, so I'm told. Um, I went to prison at the age of 17. Uh, my mom and I was attacked by a police officer who she used to date. And um, he came after my family, uh, shot my brother, my cousin. My cousin passed away. And then they came after me, and I ended up uh, defending myself and by shooting one of them. And I got sentenced to natural life in prison. And so when I went to prison, I decided to come up with a plan to turn my life around. I felt like I shouldn't have been sentenced to life in prison. So I wanted to prove that my life was redeemable. Yeah, well, uh, it seems like it has been. Yes. Uh, and uh, so, but you know, Chris, as I was reading your book, I was noticing, you know, it seemed like you you seem very uh, kind of hopeless as a teenager, even before yeah. you, you know, committed that crime and went to jail and, and went to prison. Um and, you know, it seems to me, uh, if we recount this correctly, tell me if I'm wrong, you have really no father in your life at that time. Right. Your mother had, uh, you know, had some issues that she was dealing with as well. Um, you were living in a very crime-ridden neighborhood in D.C., and this is kind of, you know, growing up mostly in the 80s and 90s, right? Yes. Um, and so it just seemed like you, uh, and then, you you know, you get sentenced to a life in prison at the age of 17. Um, you know, you wouldn't expect anything less than for someone to be depressed, and it seemed like you were. Yeah, um, very. And, um you mentioned in the book, um, you know, you said that rock bottom isn't a place because a lot of us talk about hitting rock bottom and yes. bouncing back. You said you can always go lower. It's the moment you decide to stop falling and take control of your life. You also mentioned that it was fear and only fear that got you on your feet. Can you describe that time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I feel like when, when I mentioned that uh, rock bottom and you can go further, it's just the point where you just understand that you're at the bottom. A lot of people will be at the bottom and don't know and keep going further and further. But it's the acknowledgement of like, this is the lowest point of my life. And so um, I, at a certain point, having a life sentence, spending over 100 uh, and 17 days in solitary confinement, I had to accept the fact like this was the lowest moment of my life and I decided at that point that I didn't want to keep going further uh down in my life and so I just wanted to do something different and so that's when I decided to come up what I call my master plan of how do I how would I how would I move up from here and you know prove that my life is redeemable yeah, and it seems like uh, when you finally did write that master plan, I don't know, you must have had 30, 40, 50 things on it. Yes. <laughs> and some seemed a little fantastic. A little silly, for, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Well, when you were young, what were you, 19? 19, yeah, I was 19, yes. So about two years into your sentence? Yes. Um, And some of them were like, you know, I want to go to Spain, you know, things like that. Yeah. Be on the beach. I want to come to Miami. Yes, that's that's true. Yeah. So that's that's now, so you're here, you split time between Miami, New York, and Baltimore as a visual artist? Yes. Yeah, that's my primary profession. I have a foundation now where I invest in prison education. I support other Chris's or Christine's uh, impacted by the criminal justice system, helping people get into college helping people develop trades. And so this is my way of paying it forward and just um, trying to make the world a better place than it was yesterday. Well, I, men- I mentioned to you before, I actually teach some classes in a couple prisons here, which was cool to read that 22 years ago, you were taking classes and uh, got a college degree yes. in prison, which is really what we hope to see for a lot of people as well. How was that? How was the education uh, in the prison, uh, helpful to you? Yeah, I think I think you know some people had different opinions about this, but my personal opinion about uh, education in prison is that even a little bit of education reduces the recidivism rate. As taxpayer citizens, we all pay for uh, people to be incarcerated, and if a person has been dealt a bad hand in life or or could benefit from some education, I think it's in the public's interest for us to uh, invest our dollars into the education of people incarcerated. That way they come home, they stay home, and then the money that we save from people not recidivating, we can put that in our schools. Yeah, well, I totally agree, and I mean, I I have witnessed that it's, it seems to be really impactful on people on their life. And you know, a friend told me many years ago who was involved in some prison reform issues. He said a lot of us don't understand on the outside that all of us make hundreds of decisions every yeah. day. Yeah. Um, but when you're in prison, most of the decisions are being made for you. And uh, when you and when people get out, there's a you know, they now have to relearn how to make all those new decisions. Yeah. Um, and if any of them are wrong, they're going to be back, Go back. in prison, yeah. right? But one of the things I've noticed is in the classes, people are making their own decision. They make a decision to join the class. Yeah. They make a decision to read. They make a decision to study. Um, and so I think it's uh, really, you know, nice to see that they're actually getting something out of it and their mind is developing. So uh, great to see that that was helpful for you. Um one of the things I want to ask you, though, because you had such a hopeless situation at before you developed this master plan. Yeah. Um, if others today, whether they're inside prison or outside prison, who find themselves in what seems to be like a hopeless situation, uh, what would be your advice to them? What could be their start today? Where would they get started? I think the first thing that a person can do that finds himself in, in perhaps a hopeless situation is just to realize that any situation or decision that they may have made or been involved in should not define the rest of their lives. So if you made a mistake, let's say you you have to go do some time in prison, you stole a car or something like that, and you got to do some time, that, that should not have to define you. Let's say you lost your job or you're battling addiction. Uh, there are paths to turn your life around and live a good life. And so I think that's the the one thing I would say that that a person um, in that situation should really so understand. So when when you were seventeen, if someone would have said that to you, would you have taken it like uh, like yeah, cool, bro? You know, <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, but but what what was it that really got the spark in you? Like the 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 time that it happened. I, I think you know it's, it's a good question, right? So I think it's it's the source credibility, right? So it's it's who's telling me 
this. So when I was young and in a bad situation, facing a life sentence, and there were some people who telling me that you could turn this all around, you can go to school, you can do all these things, and you can be a successful person. I never met anyone who looked like me, who came from where I came from, who was actually able to do it. Till uh, eventually I write about my friend Stephen who was in prison. He had a life sentence and he was working really hard to turn his life around through education and teaching himself computer programming. And it was just his sense of belief and confidence that that it was going to happen that I just adopted. I said, well, if this guy thinks he can do it, why shouldn't I think I can do it? And eventually we both pulled it off. We both turned our lives around. We're both home. We both are, are successful. And so I think it's just important of being able to see someone who's done it. It's easy well, to say it. I'm looking at someone right now, Chris Wilson. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad you wrote this book and shared your story. Uh, what kind of what was the kind of prison that you went to, and how did it compare to other prisons? It it was it was a maximum security prison. About a thousand uh, prisoners there. They were um, female prisoners there too. As strange as that may sound, uh, about two hundred. Uh, but the interesting thing about the prison that I grew up in was we had to go to therapy uh, multiple times a week. Uh, we had to work a job. And if we were under 21, it was mandatory to go to school. And it just was really structured in a way that uh, they gave me an opportunity to to really, you know, take a deep dive into myself and, and turn my life around. So it seems like it was like it was it was a, it had a little more special uh, yeah. rehabilitation for you. Yeah, I think it's fair to call it special, but but it yeah. was a prison and it was yeah. it wasn't a good place, but right. but it, it had opportunities, paths for us to explore to um to turn our lives around. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so we're here at the 40th annual uh, Miami Book Fair, yes. and there's obviously a lot of authors here, more than 400, including you. Yeah. Um, and even more readers. Yes. Uh, so it seems like you discovered a passion for reading in prison, Love including it. starting a book club and calling yourself the Book Crushers. Yes. Um, what did reading do for you, and why should people <clears throat> listening consider allowing reading to be a formative part of their life? So first, uh, so I've been a, a avid reader since probably the age of ten. So I usually you uh, read one book a week. Uh, and when I got into prison, since 10, since 10 wow. yes, yeah. So almost everything I've, I've, I've read, <laughs> maybe it's a lot of books out there. But uh, so so I've been reading a book a week. And, and when I got into prison and when I decided to turn my life around and just being in a place where you just you see the same thing every day, you're confined to a very, very small space. The the power of reading allowed it allowed me to figuratively escape. So I would read about you know, Cleopatra and the building of the Alexander uh, Museum, me uh, library, and just, you know, Plato's allegory to cave, like all of these um, stories and, and things that I was able to read allowed me to metaphorically leave my jail cell. So That's it was great. beautiful for me. And, and I, I still read. That yeah. You didn't just read history or fiction. You were reading things on finance and real estate, yeah, self-help books, dad, dad, yes, right? yes, these sorts of things. Uh, so that's really great that you had a wide variety of yeah. reading and uh, were able to expand your mind and and maybe put together that business plan. Yes, absolutely. You know, I felt it was important to read as much as I can about different topics uh, about the world because I knew that I was in prison but and I would have to be there for a while, but I didn't want people to seem or like recognize that I was someone who'd been locked up. So I try to read as much as possible. I watch Jeopardy every day. I read the newspaper. Just I wanted to stay up up to the times of, of the world. 
That's fantastic. Well, um, in your, um, what you know, what yeah, what other things uh, other than reading, I guess you could say that uh, that, you, that did you accomplish while you were in prison? I mean, we, we talked about the college education. Yeah. Uh, well, I studied a lot of uh, foreign languages. Wow. So I can speak uh, a few languages. Uh, Spanish, Italian. I studied Mandarin. I'm actually studying French right now. Wow. Um, uh, I, I read about art history, philosophy. Um, I studied a little bit of computer pro- uh, science and, and computer programming. And, and just like I just allowed myself to drift in a positive way uh, throughout academia. Just uh, even when I graduated college, I continued to take classes in psychology and 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 everything else that I can find. <laughs> so you're a visual artist now. What kind yes. of art do you? Uh, is it I think I, yeah, so I'm a visual artist right now, and I'm going through uh, uh, an abstract phase. So for the past three years, I've been working and making really big abstract paintings uh, all around the world. And um, I just finished up a, sh- a show or unveiling in, in Baltimore right now. Where it was some figurative work where I described the city in four big paintings, the biggest paintings I've ever done. Uh, and art has really changed uh, my life. And it's, it's a passion of mine. I'll make up excuses not to go to an event or, or go out on a date, actually, just to stay in the studio to make art. That's amazing. Uh, well, congratulations. That's an amazing <laughs> Thank passion. You. And did you were you doing uh, paintings when you were in prison? I was actually. My cell buddy who mentored me, who also had a life sentence, uh, his name is Stephen Edwards, was a visual artist. But I used to mix the paint for him, and I should do like the dirty work. I would tape up stuff. I would clean up after he would do his work. And now he teases me and says, well, I should be getting 10% on all your sales because <laughs> you were watching me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Uh, well, um, you know, just uh, I guess I guess that you know most art teachers don't get ten percent of their students. No, they don't. Yeah, <laughs> so just tell, you'll tell your buddy. Yeah. That. But, uh, um, well, in your book, you have this period where you say you were putting together ideas, even paintings. Yes. Um, that were part of what you called your positive delusions. Yeah. Um, you also talk about this as your dreams. Yes. Um, so, first of all, can you explain the positive delusions? Yeah, so a, a positive delusion and how I came to to um, like reference that word is, it's the it's a it's a belief. I had to believe that I would be free one day. I had to believe that the life that I'm living right now and traveling the world that it, it that it would come to fruition. And once you believe it, it's 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 agency. It's like a mindset, and it allowed me to get up every morning while in prison, study, go to school, uh, train, and, and work out, and and go to therapy. Because if you if I believed that I would be free one day and I would have an opportunity to to live a good life and, and support other people, then I had to get up every day to do that work. And so that's that's how it came to be. So it's interesting because. Um you know, I've been in conversations with friends or others or even, you know, where maybe they're like, oh, you know, you're delusional. Yeah. <laughs> you live in, um, you know, alternate reality, you know, whatever, you know, I, I always like to just have a positive mindset. Yeah, know, me too. Um, and I recently heard someone say uh, it's just more fun to be optimistic than pessimistic. Yeah, right? 100. Yeah. Uh, so with that all being said, I mean, do you really believe, I mean, is it, does it take the belief first before the reality, I mean, whether it's the skill or whether it's the opportunity or whatever, do you really got to believe it? How, how does belief yeah. play a role? So, so absolutely. So it, it takes belief first and here's why. So if you believe it, if I, I believe that it would have took, it would have taken me a long time, maybe 10 years or 15 years. That's what I thought back when I was young 
to, to maybe have a second chance at my life. But I believe that I would have that chance. And so I had to work backwards. I said, oh, if I'm gonna have this chance, my end game is I'm gonna be a successful entrepreneur. I'm gonna be an artist. And so what do I need to do now in order to prepare myself for that moment that I believe is gonna happen? And so it, it allowed me to get up every day to study, to get my high school diploma, allowed me to get up every day to study, to get my vocational trades, my college degree. And I was reading all these books because I wanted to apply. I knew that I would be able to apply these um, things that I learned at some point in the future. And so that was the positive delusion was like, OK, people were like, you're crazy. You have a life sentence and you're never going to get out. And it's like, well, I think you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had that. Yeah. You, I think. What struck me in the book is that you, once you had the belief that maybe I could get out one day, because yeah. you were totally hopeless if you Yeah, I was, for that. a couple of years. Yeah, and so you, you were preparing yourself, you were learning languages, you were reading, you were taking classes. Um, I mean, if it didn't work out, you might still be in there, but at least you'd be more educated. Yeah. Uh, and but, it, but you maybe would still have that hope. Um, and now you're out, and you're, I mean, you're a, su- a successful guy, you've written a book, you're here at the Miami Book Fair. Yes. Um, You've, you're, you've got visual, you know, uh, you've got visual art shows all over the world. Um, you live in three different cities, uh, <laughs> yeah. cities. Um, and so, uh, one of the things I want to mention, you know, you also talk about when you talk about positive delusions, you also talk about this as sort of your dreams. And, uh, speaking of dreams, uh, we're here in Miami, a place that has yes. become emblematic for people chasing the American dream. You know, my dad is a immigrant from Cuba. So obviously there's a lot of Cubans here, yes. um, but it's been a, been a, there's immigrants from all over the place. There's people also from all over the country here. Um, so I'd like to ask you to reflect on three parts of your life in how you viewed the American dream in each part. Uh, first, what did you think of the American dream from the vantage point of growing up in that crime-ridden neighborhood in D.C.? Yeah. Uh, secondly, what was your view when you were in prison about it? And third, what's your conception of it today? All good questions. Very uh, uh, existential, deep questions. So I, I would say, honestly, growing up, I was a little um, disillusioned or disappointed in believing that I had an opportunity to fulfill the American dream. Just because the starting block was different for me and my family growing up in a tough neighborhood. Our schools were bad. Our, our neighborhoods were written with crime. I witnessed a lot of my friends dying. And, and so it was hard to to listen to let's say officer friendly coming to my elementary school or my my teachers telling me about the american dream and what was possible when i had uh i hadn't seen it and i hadn't seen anyone who had fulfilled it and so that was one thing but having gone to prison and hit my rock bottom and understanding eventually the power of education and knowledge and understand that no one can take away knowledge that I put in my mind and how empowering it made me feel and going through college and just learning about history and business and people who've done amazing things uh, in America that that uh, inspired me and and, and I, de- I developed a belief that if I just had a chance that I could prove that I could be you know one of these uh, successful individuals. And so now, having been out of prison for 11 years, uh, live, and you know, I have homes around the world. I, I help, you know, hundreds of people. I got, I work alongside amazing people uh, and we pay it forward every day. Um, I really believe that America is um, the best place um, to, to really make a difference in this world. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for my the education that was provided for me, all my teachers, 
um, my therapist that kind of pushed me to, to make me be um, a better person. And now there's a sense of responsibility um, as an American and just as a good person to, to help as many people as I can and to pay it forward. And it's about legacy. And so I want people to remember me not as a person who committed a crime and went to prison, but as an artist who really cared about his community and did everything he could to make the world a better place. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, and Chris, how many years did you actually serve? I served 16 and a half years in prison. 16 and a half? Yes. Wow. And then I noticed that, um, I can't remember what year it was, but you were invited to the White House. Yes, uh, a couple of times. Yeah. And um, and so, to, yeah, well, tell, I know you got a, a what, presidential, award, presidential yeah. medal. Of, yeah, volunteer, uh, presidential volunteer service award. And that was when, when uh, Obama. Obama was there. And yes. What, uh, well, tell me about multiple visits to the White House. What were you there for? <laughs> I mean, for so the president of the White House. Yeah. So just, you know, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely surreal. Just my, my work was recognized through my companies and, and helping people who've been dealt a bad hand um, gain employment. And I, I had an opportunity maybe three or four times just going to the White House. And I got to tell you, it was really crazy to be in the White House and just popping a bottle of wine and a tailored suit with like all my friends or, or just like walking in different offices in the White House. And it's like, what y'all working on? It's like, this is cybersecurity. Are we doing this? It's like, it just was really crazy uh, and, and definitely humbling to know that a person who had a life sentence that felt invisible that could be recognized by the president of the United States uh, for, for doing good work in the world. And so, uh, you know. And also I, just a few miles away is where you grew up. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. That is, so that's amazing. Um, so a couple last questions here. Um, what's the difference between a dream and putting that dream into action and achieving it? What's that process like? Good question. My business professors will call this uh, applied dreaming. Everyone should dream. It's important to dream and believe it. But you have to apply yourself in order to achieve your dreams. Like everyone can, can dream. Or oh, I want to do this. Or I want to travel here or to this place. Or I want a billion dollars or something. But you have to be willing to apply yourself and put in the work. So you dream. You think about the place that you want to be, what that looks like. And then you work backwards. You think about what can I do today in order to um, fulfill my dreams. It might take a while. But like maybe you need to go to school. Maybe you need to... Uh, you know, to go on a diet or something like that, whatever your dreams are, you got to prepare yourself and be willing to work to do it. Yeah. So for sure. Um, interesting. I'd like to also hear because, uh, this was an interesting, uh, some, some commentary in the book, but, uh, what has, uh, what role has luck played in your journey? <laughs> I like this question. So, I mean, luck always plays a role in my opinion in, in things. So there's hard work, there's faith and like in God, and then there's always a little bit of luck. It's timing. You could be in an elevator with someone for a minute or two, and they might turn and say, oh, um, I heard about you, or maybe I read your book, and like, what is it that I can do to help you? And I got two minutes to talk to this person. I'm like, that's luck that you happen to end up in an elevator with someone who can maybe change your life. And, and there's situations like that all throughout life. But I believe that the, the wise people, um, they, they prepare themselves to be lucky like you you position yourselves um to to be more lucky and so, yeah, so luck luck will happen when uh, when you're prepared right and yes those opportunities come yeah absolutely because you can miss it yeah well so you've talked a lot about um uh, in the book you know you mentioned just now the, the your end game what's your end yes. game so um 
you know, there's a long road ahead, uh, but but uh, you said something in the book about what do you want people to remember about you when you're gone? Yeah. And I want to ask you that question. You're yeah. here now. You, you've uh, Actually, you and I, I think, are the same exact age, 45. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and so what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? I just would like people to 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 remember when I'm not here anymore. I want them to remember that my heart was in the right place. My mom raised me a certain kind of way uh, to help people, that the world wasn't just about myself and my own self-interest, that um, that if I thought about community and I thought about the way the world could look uh, going forward in the future and, and work towards uh, just building um, a better place, that the blessings will come back tenfold. And so a lot of people uh, that I've helped uh, mentored and, and you know gave words of encouragement. You know, I, I believe that these are our future leaders, and these are people who will, will go on and, and do the work that my mom wanted me to do. And I think when pe- when I'm gone, people will say like he was he was a good dude, and, and I won't be defined by the crime that I committed when I was a child. But people will say like he he put his heart um, in the right place, and, and he paid it forward, and, and that's it. That's, yeah, well, that's all I can hope for. a great example of, well, I think, something you said before, not to be defined by your past. Yes. To always be kind of looking for the future, being educated. Also, I thought it was really cool in the book, you talked about how you, at a very young age, became a mentor to other inmates. Yeah. And uh, I think mentorship, right? Yeah, I was important. 23. And it's like, what am I say to a guy that's, that's 55 and, and been in prison for 30 years? And people were saying, you got a lot to say to a person like that. Yeah, Which so it took me a while on this, you know. I think it was, you know, impactful on me to read that to, in that um, we, wherever, whatever place we're in in the world, whether it's prison or somewhere else, um, there are people around us where we can be good examples to. You mentioned that earlier, right? Yes. But also that we can impart wisdom, knowledge, experience on. And there are other people that are doing that for us as well. So it's, yes. a, it's a great way to continue to help each other and build community. Uh, well, Chris Wilson, uh, you uh, have written a fantastic book here. Thank you the so Master much. Plan. Yes. And uh, we're here at the Miami Book Fair again. But uh, yes. pick up this book. Where can they find it? The book is so everywhere. Books are so so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you you name it. Uh, the Master Plan. I um, also did the audio book too. Um, it's on Audible. Um, in my voice. Um, oh, great! Which is great too. Yeah. Well, um, so Chris, uh, how can people also connect with you if they want to find you? Uh, people can connect with me through my website, chriswilson.biz.biz, or through my foundation, chriswilsonfoundation.com. Or follow me on Instagram, chriswilsonslife. Real quick, what does your foundation do? My foundation, sorry about that. My foundation invests in uh, prison education, uh, financial literacy, uh, and art related programs that impact the carceral system. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Chris, uh, you're really emblematic of obviously see people who are entrepreneurial, philanthropic, and uh, thanks for sharing your story with us through the book and here on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Yes. And thanks for being an agent of innovation because it seems like you're one wherever you go. Thank you so much. much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.